Southern Skies. Online Media. This episode of Blaine Crazy Down Under is brought to you by Oz Runways, Australia's only CASA-approved electronic flight bag for iPad. Get a free 30-day trial today at ozrunways.com. And by Jet Ride Australia. Experience the ultimate thrill-ride in our Soviet-era L-39 jet. The locations in Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane. You can be top gun for the day. Find out more at jetride.com.au slash pcdu. And by 50 Tales of Flight, the latest ebook by Owens Up, covering everything from biplanes to Boeings. Available on Kindle and iTunes and at owensup.com. Well, good day, folks, and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 108 of the program that looks at the world of aviation from an Australia Pacific point of view. I'm Steve Fisher, and joining me as always, my good friend Grant McHeron. G'day, mate. Hey, mate. How are you going? I'm very good. Now, you came over to my place for a barbecue today, mate, and uh, I don't know. It's it's been. A, have I ever mentioned that C-130 flight that I did? I, I don't know if I've mentioned it much. Now, are really. you saying have you mentioned it in the last hour, the last 24 hours, or the last week? Because definitely the last two you have mentioned. Yes. Well, I've been mentioning it a lot today because. You you came over here and uh, actually, listeners, you know, since the last podcast, I've actually uh, <coughs> had a birthday and I'm now 35, Grant. I'm 35. <laughs> yes. No, in fact, I'm 42 now, sadly, but uh, it's still nice to be around. And Grant, uh, you brought me a uh, birthday present, which I really appreciate. And uh, it's a photo uh, that was taken of the Hercules that I was riding in over Sydney Harbour. I don't know how you managed to keep that a secret all these months from me, mate, but uh, it's been signed by the crew and uh, it's taking pride of place here in the studio now, mate. So that's that's an awesome present, and I wanted to uh, thank you for that and uh, thank all our contacts there at Airlift Group. I'm looking at you, Mr. Hamilton, and at you, Mr. Wickham. So uh, thanks, thanks, guys. <laughs> it looks really good here in the studio. Well, mate, uh, yeah, I figured we had to have uh, something to record the event of your first ever C-130 ride, which also, of course, happened to be the uh, media final flight of the uh, C-130H. So what better to do than get that fantastic shot of it over the harbour, you know, right when you were <clears throat> on the flight deck and uh, get the guys to sign it. So, yeah, everyone chipped in, signed it up. Um, Eamon helped by uh, running around and getting the signatures and um, Ben coordinated a bit from his position on high at ADF. And between the two of them, uh, they helped me out by getting everything together. So, send it down to me. I got it framed up and voila. Well, I tell you what, and I note with interest, Grant, that uh, one of the signatures right at the top there uh, is actually somebody who's uh, sent us a listener mail email for this episode. So, uh, that'll be coming up a bit later on. Yeah, no, it's it's great, mate. He uh, does point a little something out for you that uh, I I did kind of notice when I was handing that uh, photo over. Yeah, okay. Well, i tell you what, uh, we, we won't talk too much about that because I keep saying that I won't talk too much about that flight. Grant, have I mentioned the flight in the tanker I had recently? Oh, no. <laughs> well, enough of it. Folks, if you want to stop this from happening, help chip in and get me another aerobatic ride and then I can balance them out. Better yet, a ride in a, I don't know, a PC-9. I tell you How what. How about a Hawk? I tell what you, about an F-18? I, I tell you what, Grant, if, if, if they let me have a ride in a C-17, I'll stop talking about those other two rides. How's that sound? Well, for at least an hour. <laughs> <There we go. laughs> anyway, Grant, well, I'll tell you what, it's another packed episode coming up. In fact, uh, later on in the show, we'll be playing an interview I recorded a few months back with Laurie Jones from Adventure Wings, one of our great advertisers here on the program of late. Uh, Laurie and I talked uh, not only about his Nanchang Adventure Flights business, which they've kicked off, uh, but also about his role as an aerial firefighting pilot uh, here in Victoria during the fire season. Now, we recorded this just prior to the last fire season, so uh, he talks about uh, the 
training and other preparations that he does for that very important job. Also, Anthony, the infrequent flyer Simmons is back with another view from the lounge. And uh, Grant, I think we might be having a positive effect on Mr. Simmons after all these years. I wonder what he's been up to since his last segment. Oh, really, mate? Uh, what, you mean he's uh, he's not giving disparaging remarks to those of us who like to take the controls? Uh, well, I'm, I'm, sure, uh, I'm sure he'll have lots of positive things to talk about. So that'll be coming up a bit later on. Also, we have some news, uh, Grant, of some plans that we've uh, come up with to help Ryan Campbell from Team World Flight, uh, and uh, we're hoping that you'll be able to join us in that. Plus, we've got a bit of a giveaway thanks to the guys over at Flight Path TV in New Zealand, but we'll get to that at the end of the show. But uh, first, mate, let's kick off and get started with our feature interview. Yes, mate, absolutely. Let's get into it. And uh, I think it'd be true to say that uh, for most of us who are aviators, uh, we've all had some various challenges that we've all had to overcome during the course of our training and so on. And our guest this week is certainly no exception to that. However, this individual has had to overcome some especially unique challenges in this regard, not only in the process of learning to fly, but uh, learning to do so despite some uh, significant physical disabilities. Well, he's now an accomplished private pilot, and he's about to embark on his next big challenge, and that's to become the first quadriplegic to fly solo around Australia. I'm speaking, of course, of Mr. David Jacker, and uh, he joins us on the line now. G'day, Dave. Welcome to the show. Thanks to be here. Thanks, uh, Grant and Steve. Uh, much appreciated. Well, Dave, it's uh, certainly an epic flight that you've got coming up, and uh, one that's uh, certainly had the interest of uh, many of our listeners. We've received uh, many, many emails uh, pointing us towards your website over the last few months, and uh, we've really been uh, looking forward to talking to you about it. But uh, as is tradition, with all the pilots that we talk to, uh, you know, I'm curious, mate, uh, what got you into flying? Well, the main thing, I suppose, like any kid, you know, I've always wanted to fly. Um, you know, I think most kids growing up, uh, they have a you know dream of uh, you know jumping off a fence and you know taking flight. Uh, not that many do, of course, but um, uh, yeah. Look, for me, it's just ever since I was a kid, um, I always loved the the thought and the the idea of flying, just getting up in the air. And yeah, even though you know I wanted to be a pilot at some stage, but yeah, for me, you know, your, your life takes a little bit of a different direction, and I ended up having a uh, motorbike accident in 1988. I come off a motorbike and was thrown headfirst into into a tree shattering the fifth vertebrae in my neck, leaving, leaving me with quadriplegia. So that sort of slowed things down a fair bit. And for me, the opportunity of, or the, even the idea of ever flying again was, um, was gone. Now you say flying again, Dave. Had you done any flying at all before you received your injury? Uh, no, none at all. I think the only the only flying I've ever done is uh, when I was a kid. I was taken up in a little uh, 172 one day, and uh, which was uh, an amazing experience. But uh, for me, no, it was um, nothing at all. Now, Dave, can you uh, explain to us the extent that uh, quadriplegia applies to you? Um, I would imagine that when most people uh, come across the word quadriplegic, they would think that uh, you have no movement whatsoever below the neck. Um, Obviously, it comes in different degrees. Can you explain to us uh, the limitations that it places upon you and uh, what movement you have with your arms and uh, with your hands and so on? I think think that's one of the... I suppose congenital or difficult things for people to understand is when you mention the word quadriplegic, most people do think yeah, you've got no fit, no no movement at all. You're basically head in a wheelchair, and about the only thing you never do is lick stamps. But uh, there are different levels of injury that you can have, and. Uh, to put my injury injury into perspective, I broke what you call the uh, fifth vertebrae in my neck. Um, so I'm classified as a high quadriplegic. And what that means is that I have about 6% of my, of my function working, and which means I have no finger function at all. I have limited arm function and can't move from my armpits down. But also one of the other complications for me is that I can't control my body temperature. So when it's really hot, I have a heat. And when it's uh, cold, I freeze. Because you know, I'm just like a reptile. So so there are some, uh, yes, certainly some challenges uh, with having uh, my disability. 
So that would certainly present some challenges as, uh, you know, when you're flying around and going up and down through different layers of heat and, and so on and from a warm area to a cold area, et cetera. Yeah, well, for me, it all comes down to planning, really. And if I'm uh, going to be going out anywhere, if it's going to be a stinking hot day, then I've really got to think twice about whether I go out or, or actually how I uh, deal with the situation. And for me, if it's really hot, I have a spray bottle, I'll spray myself down. As long, long as you have a bit of wind, uh, it cools you down. But what I find is the heat, is the cold is, is probably the, uh, the hardest thing to deal with because uh, once I get cold, it's very hard to warm up. And for me, I, I first started flying uh, microlight trikes. <laughs> and, and I found that um, it wasn't so much, so it, wasn't, it wasn't so bad in summer, but in winter, it was, uh, it was, it was really tough because. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, you go up to you know um, five thousand feet, and it was damn cold, and made it very hard to uh, very hard to keep warm, even with the, a flying suit on, um, heated vest. I still couldn't keep warm. So that that actually led me to uh, one well uh, into a fixed wing aircraft uh, flying a Jabiru, um because I needed something that was enclosed and ideally something with a heater. Yeah, I could see how that would work. I mean, uh, yeah, I've had enough fun in a gyrocopter in Easter um, at Natfly, and that was cold, and I had the big jacket on and the gloves and the helmet and everything. And so I could imagine that, it, uh, yeah, you've got quite a bit of a battle there just trying to keep warm. Indeed. So, But uh, I find the Jabra is great because it is enclosed, has a heater, and so it's not a problem. But uh, probably on the on the flip side, uh, with um, being so enclosed, not a lot of air coming in. Uh, in summer, it gets stinking hot, and so uh, that can be a challenge too. But I, uh, I in, in the aircraft itself, you know, I just put big events in, and also uh, have a spray bottle, so you know I can spray myself down when I need to. So it's not so bad. So I'm just curious about flying the microlight. Was that your first foray into the world of flight, uh, David? You know, flying for yourself? Oh, it was it was for me, and or just I suppose going back to. Uh, before I started flying, for me, when I had my accident, I never, ever thought it would ever be a possibility. And, and the main reason for that is because you're not having any finger function and limb and arm function. Uh, it's just trying to do the controls or, you know, the instruments and so forth. It was just going to be very, very difficult. But it wasn't until I went to the Avalon Air Show back in 2005. And I'd always wanted a hang glide. And I came across this aircraft called the Microlite Trike, which is basically a big powered hang glider. Yep, and yep. as soon as I saw this thing, I was hooked. I had to do it. And for me, it was just, you know, I just fell in love with it. You know, it's just, uh, it's an amazing machine. Always wanted to hang glide. So it was, you, know, you, could, you could soar like an eagle and you still have a motor so you could, so you could fly around and, and go places. So, and after chatting to the guys, I thought the controls seemed so simple. Basically, you only got a you know, horizontal bar in front of you, push it, being weight shift, you just, you know, push the bar left to, to steer right, right to steer left, and to make it uh, climb and descend, you throttle the engine up and down. So for me, that just seemed such a simple and uh, and uh, amazing aircraft that I just had to do it. And um, I went home, I was just so excited. I thought, this is actually something I can actually fly. Um, before... I thought it was an impossibility, and uh, and so yeah, so this was that was sort of my first uh, uh, first time I actually ever thought that, that I could possibly get back into flying. Having a dis- disability, you know, you can't just can't just go out and do things. You you got to work out other ways of actually of actually doing it. And uh, but I think one of my biggest biggest challenges, or was my biggest challenge, was actually trying to find someone that was willing to teach me to fly. The first instructor I went to, uh, I went up for for a trial flight, came back down and said. No, forget it. You're not going to be able to do it. And for me, when he said that, I was I was just absolutely devastated. You know, I wanted to fly so badly, and 
um, you know, really just, you know, crush my dreams, I suppose you could say. But, um, you know, I think after chatting to my sister and she uh, sort of, she, you know, went a bit of a chat and, and it's a bit corny and she, she said to me, Dave, you'll work in the way you always do, you know, and um, for me it was just like switching a light, you know. the uh, my, Suddenly my self-doubt disappeared and I got to think beyond what seemed impossible and open up my mind to, you know, other possibilities. And and so for me, it was a matter of breaking down the problem about, you know, why I couldn't fly. And for me, it was strength. Having very limited arm, arm function, I got very limited strength. So I had to work out another way to do it. And even not having uh, not having finger function, I couldn't grip the bar either. So I worked out that if I made an adaptation, so I could slide my hands into into a device, I locked it in place, and had my palms instead of being flat horizontal, facing upwards in a vertical position, I could get a lot more strength. And I spent many months out in the middle of winter trying to build up my strength as much as possible, just so to give myself the best chance. And uh, I went back to the same instructor. I don't know why, but I just did. And, and once again, he said, no, forget it. You're not going to be able to do it, you know. And uh, and for me, that was a real turning point because I realised that, you know, he really couldn't see past my disability and uh, it just wasn't going to happen. So I ended up, you know, looking around and I must admit, over, over, over a bit of time, I was... Uh, my options were certainly getting low, and uh, that's when I came across um, an instructor up in um, up in Bright at Paul Punker um, at Eagle School at microlighting, and um, he, he was very different. Uh, his name's Steve Ruffles, and you yeah, know Steve, yep. Oh, you know Steve, well, yeah, yeah. He was uh, an amazing person because uh, he was just so enthusiastic, and he was just so optimistic about about um, giving me a go. Um, you know, for him, you know, when I rang him up, I just said, look, you know, this is what I want to do. I'm a quadriplegic. Do you think I could fly? He said, sure, give it a go. And so for me, that was it. You know, I, I got a mate of mine. I designed this adaptation that bolted onto the, the base bar, uh, that horizontal bar that uh, you steer with. And uh, it was fairly agricultural, I must admit, but it did the job. I went up and bolted it on and did four hours with Steve. And he said, well, you know, I think you can think you'd be able to fly if uh, you get an aircraft and fully modify it. So for me, that was it. You know, I went out. I actually bought a second-hand aircraft of Steve, and I think I may have bought the dodgy one, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the fan didn't stop anyway. That was the main thing. That's the main thing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And after I modified it, I did 17 hours with Steve, and I then did my first solo, uh, which was, which I must admit was, pro- it was probably the scariest but most exciting experience <laughs> experience of my life. Now, Dave, everybody remembers their first solo, so tell us about that flight. Uh, well, mine, it was, uh, it was pretty amazing. I think it was pretty amazing probably for everyone that does their first solo, but uh, I was up at Port Punker and uh, it was in um, on actually on Valentine's Day in 2006 and uh, it went up and it was just this amazing still night. It was warm. It's you know still probably around about you know twenty eight degrees, and it was just so so still. And uh, yeah, it just went up and circled around, and went over over to Bright and came back. And and uh, it's funny because you know when you when you do your first solo, you're so rely oh, yeah fairly reliant on your instructor. You know you always got in the back seat, or you know depends what the aircraft was next to you, and and there's always that uh, bit of reassurance, I suppose you could say that you know if. Uh, Anything went wrong, or you forgot something that you know he'd uh, give you a dong on the head and tell you to tell you what to do. So yeah, so for me it was uh, once you get up, it was actually really um, quite a weird experience. The aircraft you know took off a lot 
lot quicker. <laughs> um, you know, he didn't have that other 80 kilo on the back. And, uh, yeah, it was just amazing. It was flying around. And, uh, yeah, it was a bit, a bit un- I think it was a bit unnerving at times because you realise you're actually totally in control of the aircraft and there's just no one else there. And uh, even though he was on the radio and uh, giving me a bit of guidance, but uh, around around Bright, if you go too far, you actually get out of radio contact. So he couldn't, he couldn't. I went out and had a bit of a fly around, and actually he couldn't uh, get me on the radio. So he's thinking, oh Christ, you know, <laughs> what's happened? You know, the only, my first quadriplegic uh, student, and I've lost him. But, uh, <laughs> but I came back. That was the main thing. But yeah, it was just it was amazing and like a dream in a way. Just came down, it was a perfect landing, pulled up, and um, yeah, it was just an amazing experience. You know, it was uh, such a feeling of elation because it was. Uh, such a huge challenge for me, mainly because it wasn't so much from a physical disability, but it was also from people's attitudes. That was even yeah. though even though like, I'd been in a chair for what um, at that time eighteen years, there've always been people that haven't been overly supportive, people that didn't think you could do it. And for me, it's always been there, but you know, you sort of you know brush it aside. But it was probably this time that's what that's what it became so apparent that uh, there's quite a few people thought I actually couldn't do it. So for me, it was a huge achievement because I actually proved you know something to myself, and you have a lot of self doubt. And uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah for, for myself, it was, uh, it was a massive achievement, something that um, you know certainly uh, never forget. So in undertaking this flight uh, around Australia and, uh, you know, obviously uh, going off to be the first person to do this, uh, a quadriplegic to to do this, uh, that's obviously a, a big factor in that, obviously, is to, is to prove to others that uh, even if you don't have a disability, if you put your mind to it, anything is possible. Well, it is. That's right. And that's what um, I started in 2010. I started a charity called On the Wing in a Chair. And that all stemmed from the challenges I had to face, not so much from my physical disability, but from people's attitudes because you know, I don't believe in discrimination. People don't discriminate. It's just that people don't understand. And so I feel you know, it's my role to um, educate people, to show people that if you've got a disability or, or whatever, you know, everyone's got a challenge in life. It doesn't have to be a physical disability. There's a lot of people around with a lot of other challenges they have, whether it's, you know, um, it could be depression or uh, other, you know, challenges in life. So uh, I'm doing this round Australia flight just to show people that um, uh, to, well, I suppose, raise the public's expectation of what people with disabilities can do and, and hopefully inspire others, whether they have a disability or not, to get out and have a go at their own dreams and, and goals in life. So being quadriplegic, if um, this this attempt will become is world first, uh, so I'll be the first quadriplegic to fly solo around the coastline of Australia. And along the way, hopefully, I can um, yeah, edu- educate people to show people what someone with a disability can do and uh, inspire others. So you're taking a Jabiru. It looks like it's a Jabiru 230, uh, which has got quite a bit of space and power to it and uh, can lift quite a load. What modifications have you had to it? Um, I had to modify it fairly extensively to allow me to fly it independently. Because I am very highly disabled, I have no finger function and a limited arm function, uh, the biggest problem for me was having enough strength and um, not having the finger function, don't have the dexterity to be, actually, to be able to use the controls. So I had to, uh, I, I designed the adaptations myself and had them made up uh, to, suit, to suit my disability. There's nothing I could buy off the shelf that I could use. Uh, there are some hand controls around that paraplegics use and uh, there's a big, big difference between me being a quadriplegic and a paraplegic where they've got full use of arms and shoulders and and uh, can do some pretty amazing things. The only thing they can't do is walk. So, um, so for me, it was a matter of having to uh, redesign the adapt or design adaptations to certain disabilities. So, uh, effectively, as you know, with with the rudder, you steer with your feet. 
I, I uh, got rid of the pedals and converted that to a hand lever operation. So on the left-hand side, I have a lever, and if I push it forward, yours, the nose of the plane right, pull it back, yours, the aircraft to the left. Good thing about the Jabiru is that the control column is, is on the center console. So it's right out of the way, which makes it very easy. So with that, I've uh, made an adaptation where it allows me to slide my hand into or around the uh, control column. That locks my wrist in place so I can then push it forward, backwards, left and right without the use of fingers. Um, also, when, also when you're flying, both hands utilise, I need another hand to do the throttle, which I can't do. Plus also, uh, because I don't have any finger function, I can't actually, I don't have the dexterity to actually um, you do fine movements on the throttle because my throttle on, on this aircraft is on the dash. So it's just a, uh, a rod, you pull, push and pull out of, the, out of the dash. So I converted that to a sit puff system. So what that is, on my mic boom, I have a tube, and if I suck on the tube, throttles the engine down. If I blow on the tube, throttles the engine up. So good say I do a lot of sucking and blowing when I go flying. But, uh, <laughs> How sensitive is that? Uh, is that control, though? Uh, if I give it, a, it's if I give it a quick puff, uh, it'll move the throttle about 100 revs, and uh, it only works. So if you if you give a little bit of an input with a quick puff, the throttle only moves incrementally, and it will stay there. It doesn't spring back. And so if you want to, you know. Uh, on takeoff, do full throttle. You just uh, just put a little bit of uh, pressure in, into the into the tube, so give it a little little bit of a blow, hold the pressure, and as it throttles the engine up, and uh, and then yeah, you take off. So it's very simple to use, and the best thing about it for me is uh, crosswind landings. Now, when you're coming down, especially at Turin, you know, you're <laughs> – yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> well, I think you know, 90% of the time it's crosswind, so <laughs> yeah, you get a lot of practice. Now, when I go flying, if there's, no, if, it is, if there's not a crosswind, I sort of feel a bit uncomfortable because, you know, it's not used to the normal state of uh, flying around Turin. So for me, with the sit puff, it means that I can be um, – have the controls fully crossed up, still controlling the throttle as I come down. And so that allows me to be in, in control of the aircraft fully at all times, which is really good. So uh, plus also there's quite a few other um, modifications I had to make so I could use the controls that use of fingers. Uh, for example, the brake itself. In the Jabiru, you've got the hand or the, the, the brake lever, which is in front of the control column. Uh, makes it very – I think it's even quite difficult for able-bodied people, people who use their fingers to use. So – I've converted that to using a toggle switch to activate the brake, and that's activated through a pneumatic system. I have a little compressor uh, in the back, in the uh, back of the plane, and if I flick the toggle switch up, that uh, activates the uh, air cylinder and uh, it activates and, and pushes the brake on. So if you want to lock the uh, brakes on fully, just hold the toggle switch up until the lever moves back or fully. Uh, if you only want to slow down you know, incrementally or, or just you know to, uh, at a gentle pace you just flick the uh toggle switch up and once it starts gripping if you just jiggle it up and down in that one position it sort of holds the uh braking force and so you can so you can um adjust you know so you can either brake quickly or slowly or whatever you want so um so it takes a little bit of practice but uh, it, you can get get the hang of it pretty quickly uh, plus also on the dash itself uh some of the little knobs and uh, that i can't do without using fingers. I also installed little little levers um, on on those, so I can just flick them around without the use of fingers. Um, so yeah, so inside the aircraft is I had to uh, modify it fairly extensively to, to to allow me to operate everything by myself basically. Did Jabiru work with you to make these modifications, or did you uh, need a, a team of you know engineers and that sort of thing to to help you out with that? No, I I designed all the adaptations myself. 
Um, I do have an engineering background, so I basically did the, I suppose, the um, the preliminary design and sent them up to Jabiru. And the agreement was when I when I spoke to Jabiru, I said, you know, this is what I want to do. Uh, I need an aircraft. I want to, I'd like to, you know, potentially buy one and. Uh, have to modify it with my adaptations. They they weren't interested in in doing the adaptations, and uh, which is understandable because there's a lot of trial and error. You don't just uh, think, okay, I'll put a lever in here and it'll work. It's, it takes a lot of trial and error. So so what I did, I they agreed that if I designed them, uh, they had a look and uh, they felt that they would work would be okay, and they agreed to approve them. So uh, which was great because um, it made made it meant that it made my life a lot easier. And I didn't have to, you know, go down the very expensive path of getting a car 35 engineer to design them all up and, and that sort of thing. So, uh, so, I, so I greatly appreciate um, Jabiru for, for allowing me to do that because I uh, certainly made my life a lot easier. So what, what I had to do, I designed them and got a guy, uh, Jeff Higgins, who is uh, really quite an amazing guy, is so good at making mechanical things making things work so effectively i you know designed them gave them to jeff and and i worked with jeff to get to get the adaptations working and there was a lot of trial and error you know we we you know first make the the first rudder lever and I thought oh that looks pretty good try it out and it just wasn't right you know the it, it took too much force for me to steer the front nose wheel and, and the rudder so we had to you know change the the mechanics, so uh, it made it easier to operate for me. So uh, it's things like that you install it, and there's a lot of trial and error for me. In particular, you know, originally I thought I'll go down the path of having all pneumatic, you know, pneumatic uh, throttle control, brake, trim, all that sort of thing. But uh, and even chatting to a lot of engineers, saying, "Oh yeah, you know, it'll, you know, you can, you can do it, it can work, you can control a, a throttle very finely." Well, that didn't work. <laughs> it, it doesn't work when you have varying frictions friction in the system so i went back to my original idea and just all and use all electric uh, the only thing i kept the pneumatic system for was for the braking which actually works very well and how about so, the radios and gps units um well they're, they're not too bad with with the radio itself to change the channel it's just got knobs so i can just flick the uh, knobs around and uh, to select the channels but also what i what i utilize when I'm flying and what I'll be doing for the round Australia flight is also is um, putting pre-programmed channels into the radio yep, and yep. so I can just uh, select those and uh, as needed because I can't have any finger function I can't uh, do the push to talk so I have uh, like a big button on my console on my, on my armrest and so I just have that near my elbow so when I want to talk in the radio I just uh, whack my elbow on the button and uh, and give my calls nice so flying the aircraft, one of the things that I'm interested in is, um, I guess, sensory perception, Dave. I know, and I can only equivocate this to my own experience where, you know, when you're flying, you know, you sort of feel at one with the aircraft when you're coming into land. There's a, a sensory perception in your case where you, you don't have, uh, or you have limited perception, I guess, you know, below uh, neck level. How have you had to, how do you fly the plane, I guess, is the question I'm asking from that perspective. Um, oh, I think uh, when I fly the plane, I'm pretty much at one. Um, I think I'm... I'm I'd be like everyone else. Um, it's a very good question. It's uh, for me. It's I suppose I've been you know I've been a wheelchair for twenty five well, almost twenty five years. So you even though um, you know you don't have 
I don't have function below my armpits, um, you still become accustomed to how things feel. And so, you know, for me, um, I'm probably in a way probably at an advantage at times because using your arms and using your hands, because I do have limited arm function, um, you can actually really feel the aircraft. And you know if something's not right, you know, I'll be flying, I'll think, oh, it just doesn't feel right. And I'll, I'll you know, get land and get on, the, get on the ground and I'll notice that the trim tab, they've got my tail, someone's knocked it or, or had a bit of a fiddle. And uh, so I can tell that things just aren't right. Um, so, but it's also, you know, for me, it's just a lot of practice and you just get used to it. Um, it's, like, it's like anything. Uh, with enough practice, it becomes... Um, second nature. Second nature, that's right. That's right. And uh, and all, in using all my adaptations and everything, you know, it's, um, it's all second nature now. I must admit, when I was did the adaptations, I was learning to fly it. God, it was it was tough at times, especially um, when you got when you got to operate the radar on your left hand one way, and you're doing the pitch or the bank of the uh, the aircraft with your right hand. Then you got to be trying to uh, control the engine and sucking on the tube and blowing on the tube, all doing that at once. It's like trying to tap your head and rub, rub your stomach at the same time. It's just damn hard. <laughs> like and like the last a helicopter. Part, yeah, I used to come down and I'd be you know thinking, okay, I got to go this way, and I'd be pushing and pulling things all the wrong way, and I'd be going all over the place as I was coming in on my final approach but um, but yeah after lots and lots of practice you know I eventually got the hang of it but I think for me one of, one of the one of the biggest challenges was coming from a trike and flying the Jabiru uh, the Jabiru uh, there's a lot more to do in the cockpit than the trike the trike when you come for landing you back off the engine and it just floats in uh, to land a bit short, a bit more power. But with the Jabiru, you've got to, you know, you've got to set up with trim and, and then your flaps. And, you, and as soon as you adjust one thing, you've got to do your throttle. And uh, and it's just this constant adjustment. I actually found that quite a challenge at the start, just trying to remember what, what to do, what order, and trying to, you know, do the throttle, rudder, and pitch and roll the plane all at the same time. And uh, how many hours have you uh, racked up in the Jabiru now? Uh, on the Jab, I've got about ooh, 430 hours. Okay, so you're, you're well used to it by now. That's the point. Yeah, I think I've just got the hang of it now. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so before I fly around Australia. <laughs> exactly. Now, now, here's a question for you. Uh, we've talked about modifications inside the aircraft when you're flying, but how do you train that? You're in a wheelchair. You're, you're able to um, move yourself about in a wheelchair. So how do you transition from wheelchair into plane and things like that? And do you also do your pre-flight inspections? Well, for me, um, starting on pre-flight inspections, I can, I can do so much. You know, I can... I can reach, uh, you know, some of the bits and pieces, the flaps and and uh, the tail and those sorts of things. But what I can't do is, you know, re- refueling the plane, uh, testing the fuel, and also doing the oil. So I have, gen- I, I'll have uh, uh, generally if I go flying, I've got uh, someone to help me. Uh, I got a, I call them my support crew who come down. They'll just give me a hand. They, they, and so they do, they do. Uh, what I can't do with my hands. So they're basically my hands. Yep. So I'll get them to refuel it, check the oil, do all the things I can't do, but I'm always watching what they do. And so they do it a specific way and do it my way just to make sure that, you know, it's all done uh, done properly. You know, at, at the end of the day, you know, you're, you're responsible for, for the aircraft, so you've got to make sure that it's done right. Uh, trying to get into the aircraft, the aircraft itself is quite high and being quadriplegic, there's no way I can actually get into that myself. So I have a little scissor lift that I have in the back of the plane. So all I do is park myself up against the side of the plane. We get the scissor lift out, slide it under the wheelchair and I plug the power into the uh, outlet on the on the dash of the plane and uh, lifts the whole chair up 
And with a bit of assistance, I get someone to grab my backside and just lift that into the plane and I drag, drag my legs in. And uh, I need someone to give me a hand to get it sorted, sorted there. And then the lift folds down, that goes back in the plane and also my wheelchair all folds up and that all goes into the back of the plane. So uh, no matter where I go, uh, even if I went flying by myself and, uh, you know, I could land somewhere and someone give me a hand to get out. But generally, I, you know, someone will come with me anyway. So, yeah, they can give me a hand wherever. When I go flying around Australia, I've, uh, I've, got, a, I've got a support team that's going uh, so they can give me a hand when I'm on the ground. So once I'm in the plane, I'm fine. But try and get out and and uh, and do the do the checks and maintain the plane. I need a bit of assistance. Okay, so we have like two teams. So one's already ahead, close to where you're going to land, while the others uh, helping you you get off on the ground. Or are they going to just give chase on the ground and catch up with you when you get there? Uh, the trip itself, I'm going to fly solo in my plane, and I've got two support planes going with with six support crew. So what happens there? I've got Three crew, I've got two pilots in each plane. Uh, I've got a project coordinator, uh, my wife, is my wife Linda, and also I've got a personal support um, who will um, just give me a hand with my uh, personal care that I need during the flight. Mm-hmm. So the pilots, uh, one, actually one of the pilots, Gordon McCaw, he's also a paraplegic. So uh, he's flying uh, in a Piper Archer with his son, Paul, and also I've got uh, in the other plane, got another a Piper Lance. It's a big six-seater. That's uh, got Bob and Michael, so they're, they're flying that plane. So what's going to effectively happen is uh, the pipe is a lot faster. They'll probably take up a bit later. Uh, I'll get going, and the uh, the lance will sorry the lance will um, is will go ahead, and the popper archer that'll they've got a similar airspeed anyway, so they'll hang around my area as we're flying, uh, depending on what happens, of course. Um, but um, but that's generally the way we're going to do it, and which means that. The project coordinator, Linda, if she goes ahead, she can then call the media and just get things organised on the ground so for when we arrive. Because the whole the whole purpose of this trip, you know, it's um, it's going to be a huge personal challenge for me. You know, I'll be the first quadriplegic in the world to to fly around around Australia. But the most important thing, and what I'm trying to do here, is is raise awareness to show that even though you might have a disability, you can you can do you know pretty much anything you want, and hopefully inspire others just to get out and have a go at their own dreams and goals, whether they have a disability or not. I've been working on this project for six years, you know, trying to get up and running, and it's been you know, a lot of uh, you know, a lot of wrong turns and standing up on the wing of the chair. It's a charity it, that took a lot, a lot of work. So it's just taken a lot of time to get to where we're at. Uh, the support teams are absolutely amazing. So they uh, a lot of um, different skill sets, different age groups. You know, one of the pilots um, in, in the Lance, uh, Michael, he's uh, 22 years old. And he's the CFI for, uh, from Griffith, uh, and also Bob, yeah. who's uh, also the in the Lance, and he's uh, about, was about 68, 69 years old, and he's got thousands of hours flying, a lot of experience. So um, got a real unique team behind me, which is absolutely fantastic. So when we land at the stopover locations, that's where I'll have the opportunity to meet the community and have a bit of a chat to them about the flight. Um, and also I hope we'll get school groups down there so I can um, yeah, just spread a message about what we're trying to do and just try and uh, make things a little bit better for, some, for, for other people. I'm paying my own way with my own plane of fuel. The the other pilots are paying their own way with their own aircraft and fuel. I've been very lucky with the community along the way because uh, my parents have been working on uh, trying to get us accommodation for the last year and a half at, at all our stopover locations. So we've got most of our accommodations donated, whether through flying clubs helping us out or um, hotels, the fire emergency services in Western Australia. They're, they're helping out in a number of towns. Um, we've been very, very lucky with uh, the support that the community has, has given us. So, yeah, this is a real, you know, I suppose, a, you know, a community-involved 
project, you could say. Yeah, definitely. There's no real sponsors, like no real group that's, uh, as you said, you're paying your own way around and the other aircraft are paying their own way around as well. So so there's no, like, I was going to ask who, who's sponsoring the project. Uh, no. That's fantastic. Uh, so like, we, we looked at sponsorship and there's, um, there, there's some issues, obviously, with um, it becomes a commercial operation if you start getting sponsors. But yeah, for, for me, it was it didn't really sit right either. It was, it's This is about... You know, trying to make a difference in other people's lives, not a, um, I suppose, a big uh, advertisement, you know, I could say. So but like we've had a lot of people donate uh, to us, you know, in-kind equipment and, and so forth. So a lot of supporters behind us, and uh, which have been very lucky. Also, Honor Wing of the Chair is a charity, so we are getting donations um, through the charity, which is going towards helping support the volunteers with um, some accommodation we can't get, ground transport. And, and just the general living expenses for the volunteers themselves. But uh, everything else, we're just covering ourselves. Dave, we're sort of running a bit towards the end of our time here for this interview, but I've got a couple of questions I wanted to ask you before we finish up. Yep. And uh, the first one goes with flight planning. I note from your map here that your first leg is, in fact, over Bass Strait. Um, yep. I'm wondering about uh, you know any special um, considerations that you've had to think about with regard to survival gear or emergency procedures when you're uh, doing those two long uh, overwater crossings. Uh, yeah, good question. I suppose there's only so much you can do when you're flying over the best straight as far as uh, gear and that sort of stuff. Base, effectively, you know, once you're flying over, do the crossing, you've got to be wearing life jackets, which we'll have. Um, the most important thing there is um, uh, we'll have the uh, support planes. I'll be uh, following fairly closely. Plus also just doing the, the standard skeds, uh, schedule calls uh, uh, as we go over. We are going over through from Wilson's Prom uh, down to uh, over Flinders Island, so there are a few more rocks along the way uh, if something did happen. But, yeah, there's... Uh, Pretty much, I'm in my aircraft, so hopefully the fans not going to stop on the way over. But um, at the end of the day, the plane doesn't know it's over waters. Just, uh, just <laughs> me, so it should be okay. Well, you've already done some long um, test flights, haven't you? I have indeed. Yeah, I've already done a water crossing over King Island back in January, and uh, it's funny because I was, I was actually quite apprehensive uh, to do that crossing. But once you once you get up high enough, the island is right in front of you. It's actually not that yeah. far, so it's more about. In your mind um, than anything else. And I've I've, I've done uh, some uh, long flights. I've flown th- flown up through Central Australia just by myself with a, a personal support person. Give me a hand, and uh, it must be flying through the outback there. There's uh, not much around, so um, yeah. So I'm uh, fairly well used. I know what to expect, but it's just a, just a, you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to uh, risk management, and uh, you know, we are we do take you know um, flying up up around Australia, we have taken our survival kits and we have all the communications equipment that we need, you no know, satellite phones, EPIRBs and uh, <laughs> VHF and UHF radios. So we should be able to, and mobile phones, so we should be able to stay in contact. But um, yeah, so, but, uh, but for us, for me, you know, getting across the crossing there, so you get up nice and high and um, head on over. So uh, Dave, we're getting to the flight. Now you're kicking off on the 29th of April and you're uh, departing from Turretum, which is fantastic because that's only 10 minutes from my place. We can come and see you off. And, fantastic. Uh, you- you're heading sure. off uh, to Tassie, as we mentioned. Uh, tell us a bit about the uh, the route that you'll be taking from there. Okay, so um, yeah, so I'll, I'll expect you guys be able to come down on the uh, 29th, then. So about nine o'clock we'll be leaving. Yeah, we're going to head off down to Tasmania first, um, down the west coast, then back up the east coast of Tassie, then up the east coast, uh, coast of Australia in an anti-clockwise direction. Uh, we have 21 flying days and 10 rest days. So I'm expecting, I'm hoping that the uh, but the trip will be finished by around about the 29th of May. But with flying, nothing really goes to plan. So, uh, so uh, I'd be surprised if we if we um, meet our, meet our date anyway. I'm, I'm expecting it to go a bit longer. 
some of our legs are varying from three hours, which would be the shortest leg on a day, to around about six hours flying. But six hours flying doesn't sound like a hell of a lot, but for me, uh, it becomes a very, very long day, mainly because uh, for me to get up in the morning, uh, it takes me three hours. So I'll be getting, if, if we've got a you know, six-hour flight, I'll be getting up at three or four in the morning just so we can get down the airfield a reasonable time, prep the plane, get flying, fly for you know, two and a half, three hours, have a break for lunch, uh, a couple of hours or an hour or two, and then uh, get going to the last leg and then land, do media, meet the community, and then you know, get, get to our accommodation. So it's going to be a very, very long day. So it's certainly not going to be a holiday. It's going to be, a for me, I see it as a massive challenge and um, massive challenge for myself. But, you know, you've got to challenge in life, makes it fun. Absolutely. Absolutely. But the public can also follow the journey. And that's what one thing that we really want people to do is to get onto our website, which is on a wing in a chair.org.au. And uh, I'll be doing a blog every day. And we'll be doing Facebook and Twitter. Uh, we're, we're doing it now, but we're doing a lot more often when we're flying. And I've also got a Spider Tracks um, tracking unit in my plane. So on our website, we've got a live tracking page. People click on onto that. Uh, they can see where my aircraft is um, is at in real time, which, um, yeah, so. So uh, it should be good. Well, Dave, it's going to be, as you say, a massive undertaking. And as you mentioned there, your website is onawingandachair.org.au. Facebook and uh, Twitter, I think, is uh, Wing and a Chair. We'll put all the links in the show notes. Uh, mate, we wish you uh, every success for your flight. Uh, we'll uh, make sure that we get down there on the uh, 29th of uh, April and see you off. And we uh, certainly want to encourage as many members of the PCDU community as we can to uh, get onto Dave's website, have a look at where he's going to be and when, and get out there and support his flight. It's, uh, it's well worth doing, and uh, we want to show as much support for Dave as we can. So, uh, Dave Jacker, all the best for the flight, mate, and we'll see you at Turidan on the 29th. Fantastic. Look forward to it, and uh, thank you very much for this opportunity, Stephen Grant. It's a pleasure, mate. No worries, mate. Ever dreamt of flying in a warbird? Why not strap yourself in for pure excitement and let a supercharged radial engine take you up to speeds of 200 knots? Dare to push the boundaries as you experience up to 6.5G, fully aerobatic or simply take in the spectacular scenery of Western Port Bay, French and Phillip Islands with 360-degree views. Come and join us at Adventure Wings in Turidan and take flight in our Nanchang CJ6A. Plane Crazy Down Under listeners get the 15-minute flight for only $250. That's a saving of $30. Call us on 0418 525 658 or visit our website, adventurewings.com.au. Flying every weekend and other times by appointment. Adventure Wings. Leave the ordinary behind. Plan your flight. Fly your plan. With Oz Runways. Oz Runways turns any iPad or iPhone into a full-featured moving map GPS complete with all the official Australian aviation charts. Oz Runways makes the task of creating and submitting a flight plan a breeze and can be a great tool for improving situational awareness en route. Annual subscriptions start at only $74.99, so get your copy today. For your free one-month trial, search for Oz Runways EFB in the iTunes store or visit ozrunways.com. Oz Runways. Know where you're going. G'day, this is Owen's Up. Just a quick note to let you know that my new ebook, 50 Tales of Flight, is now out on Amazon and iTunes. Find 50 Tales and my latest updates at owensup.com. In the meantime, sit back, relax, enjoy the show with Grant and Steve.
Yeah, it's a great pleasure to welcome to the studio from Adventure Wings, Laurie Jones. G'day, Laurie. G'day, how are you going? I'm oh, good, thanks, mate, and uh, welcome. And uh, tell us a bit about Adventure Wings. Uh, well, we got started uh, in, uh, we've got our approvals in late August this year uh, to operate Nanchang Adventure Flights from Turin Airfield, Victoria. And now it's the Nanchang CJ6. Let's go through some of the, the nitty-gritty stats about it. Uh, let's talk about its power plant and its V-speeds and, and all that sort of good stuff that our pilots would like to hear. Okay, it's a, uh, it's a 285-horsepower, nine-cylinder radial just very lightly supercharged. It's uh, 10.2 litres and uh, she's a reasonably quick machine. It's um, 201 knot V&E and a normal cruise of about 150 knots is quite feasible if you're prepared to burn the fuel. Very pleasant to fly. And what sort of fuel burn at 150 knots? I mean, how many litres per hour would you be chewing through there? That'd be uh, probably 75 litres an hour. Wow. So not the cheapest of machines to run. It, de- it depends a lot on how you operate it. Um, <clears throat> the previous owner on the throttle has put a little dollar sign <laughs> on, on the throttle itself, and, and he's absolutely right. The further forward that lever is, the, the more it burns. Now, um, you talk about previous owners. What's the history of this aircraft? Uh, the aircraft uh, came into the country in the uh, early 90s and uh, out of military service in China and was uh, restored at uh, Taiab and lived there for many years, been around the airshow circuits. A lot of people would have seen it around. And then the owner moved to, uh, to Gatton in Queensland. Uh, it was up there for some years. And uh, when we've purchased it, of course, it's it's ended up pretty well back where it came from. So it's it's been a lot of time here. How do, how do you find, I'm curious with these aircraft being Chinese, I guess there's a lot of parts that aren't too common. Is it is it hard to find parts for the aircraft? Parts don't seem to be a drama. We haven't had uh, much issue with that at all at this stage. The um, the aircraft has a lot of commonality with, with the Yak, although it's not actually a, a real copy of the Yak. There are some common parts, but parts are available quite freely from the States. Not a problem at all. So the good old US is, uh, as usual, it's a good thing. They've got everything over there, I guess. Yes, they do. There's a, there's a couple of guys, one in particular um, in the States, who, who carries just about everything you could ever want uh, for an Anchang. Now, a lot of people, myself included, mistake this aircraft for an, a knockoff of, the, of a Yak, but I believe the CJ-6, that's not the case for that one. Is that right? No, look, I don't think it is. Uh, it certainly shares some common systems uh, and some common concepts, like the, the pneumatic system is nearly identical they have probably copied that almost directly and the pneumatic system is great for them because they needed to be able to operate in extreme cold uh, where hydraulics and batteries are not going to work too well but where they've improved it of course over the yak is, is the um, the undercarriage folds completely away and, and it makes a, a, a lot cleaner aerodynamically so the, the Nanchang is faster on uh, less horsepower. And uh, when you're up there flying, I mean, is it an easy aircraft to master? Is it something that took a while to get used to? Or I know you've got some aerobatic experience that we'll talk about in a minute, but uh, how, how do you find it compared to some of the other types you've flown? It's, uh, it's actually a beautiful aeroplane to fly. It's um, very light on the controls, beautifully harmonised, and I think the, the Chinese have done a fantastic job. It's uh, from I don't have a lot of experience in yaks, but I have heard from a, a yak pilot that it is more pleasant to fly than a yak as far as the lightness of the controls go. The Yak, of course, climbs a lot faster because it's got more horsepower. And like I guess like all of those, uh, you know, sort of communist era uh, aircraft, they're, they're perhaps maybe not the prettiest of things around, but they're very functional and uh, very, very rugged. I often think that people write off, you know, Soviet block aircraft at their peril. Oh, absolutely right. Um, some of the other flying I do is in, in the uh, the Polish um, PZ Aldrometer, and uh, that experience and with this aircraft, 
aircraft from that part of the world are, are very um, sensibly engineered, very w- strongly built, and and very practical. I think because a lot of the the airfields that you see over in those parts of the world are not exactly the you know the smooth sort of runways that we get, say at uh, you know even a Turin or Moravian. I mean, you're talking about some pretty bumpy uh, surfaces to take off and operate out of. Oh, absolutely. The um, the Nanchang seems quite happy on on grass, and uh, I guess where they come from, they're often operated in areas where they don't have good support either, uh, away from, from engineering and so forth. So they, they've made them pretty rugged and uh, pretty simple to operate on. Well, I know it's a design that's been around a long time, and I believe that the uh, Chinese uh, Defence Force are still using them to this day, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Yes, they do. They still make them, and they still use them. From what I understand, the, the cockpit is very similar to a um, one of the lead-in jets they use, uh, one of the MiGs. So um, the pilot can get out of the, the Nanchang and jump in the jet and be reasonably familiar with the, the layout. Now, um, let's have a bit of a talk about uh, your history because obviously uh, you just haven't just sort of walked into the Nanchang and started uh, flying it about, but uh, you've, you've been a, a flying since the uh, mid-70s. Uh, well, yes, I, the usual story, I guess, for a lot of people, I got interested in, in um, aircraft probably earlier than I can remember. I, it must have been very, very small. And model aeroplanes as a, as a youth, as a kid, then at about 14, I started gliding. We had a gliding club uh, not far from home. Well, actually, it was 14 miles out of town uphill, which I used to go up on my push bike. <laughs> <laughs> Both directions, I suppose. Yeah, it wasn't so bad coming home, but uh, I couldn't do it today. But I was very lucky because we had some great pilots and personalities in that gliding club who, who were great instructors and, and were quite happy to have a young bloke hanging around the airfield all weekend. Well, it's interesting that uh, gliding. I mean, it's interesting how many people we talk to that are, uh, are actually in aerobatics or have become military pilots or stuff like that that uh, started off in gliding. In fact, we uh, we talked to a, an ex-RAF fighter pilot recently who had a, a great love of hang gliding, so I find that uh, quite quite fascinating. And obviously, it's not something I've done, actually, but it's obviously something that really teaches you about aerodynamics and, and flying properly. I guess when you've got no engine up there, that's uh, pretty critical. It does, I think. It, it, it gives you a good appreciation of, of what the environment is that you're flying and is doing. Gliding is certainly like that. Um, hang gliding, I also did. Uh, at 16, I started hang gliding and, and powered flying as well. And yeah, the gliding is a is a great way to learn to fly um, because you you have to fly efficiently. It's great fun. The the, the hang gliding was was um, pretty special too. That was um, I was sixteen when I started hang gliding. I, all my flying as a as a kid was was all self funded. I I had jobs uh, before and after school to pay for all my flying, so mum and dad didn't have to pay for anything. So I, I think I really appreciated every every moment I was able to get in the air. Yeah, I don't think they were very impressed when I bought a hang glider, however, but. Um, they didn't actually say too much at the time, so I was probably pretty lucky they didn't, yeah, pretty didn't stop me doing it. Very lucky, very lucky indeed. It's actually a shame, isn't it? We talk a lot these days about uh, you know young young people coming into aviation these days, and I think the opportunities for people to do to do it at that age in the way you've described are probably pretty well gone now. Well, it's it's not so easy, I think, for for young people to earn the money for flying. I guess it's all relative. When when I first started power flying, it was um, it was twenty six dollars an hour for yeah. a, for a brand new four seater Grumman Traveller. Um, yeah. Jewel. <laughs> so, but I had an extraordinary uh, before school job, commercial cleaning, and I, I I was earning fifty six dollars a week, no, fifty two dollars a week. So, good money in those days. Very good money. Yeah, yeah very good money. I, I still can't believe I had that luck, and that's what really got me flying. Now uh, it says here in your bio here that uh, you, you've uh, actually done a lot of ag work, agricultural spraying, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, well, I. I 
didn't do my commercial license till uh, we came to Australia in, in 80, 89. We came to Australia and did my commercial with uh, Barry Foster down at Leangatha and uh, with, with a with a view to doing agricultural flying. That was the only kind of commercial flying I was interested in at the time. Mm. They do a lot of ag um, flying down there at Leangatha, don't they? Yeah, yeah there's, uh, there's about three operators uh, on the airfield uh, all doing the local stuff. Um, Barry, of course, is the, the bigger one with a flying school and an operation in Deniliquin plus the firebombing and, and that's who I do firebombing for over summer. Yeah, and uh, you're still doing the firebombing now? Uh, yes, yeah, we'll do another season this year. Now, obviously, being a former firefighter, our audience, most of our audience would know that. I have a lot of admiration for you guys that get up there and do all that sort of uh, aerial spraying over fires. Is there a lot of training involved for that sort of stuff or is it just an extension of your, your ag work? It is, to a large extent, an extension of, of ag work. I have heard they're talking about introducing a separate endorsement for it. And I can understand that because there are aspects of it that are quite different to ag. But the ag experience is, is just what you need to be able to, in the first place, operate the aeroplane and, and operate it safely down low. I imagine with the huge amount of radiant heat that's coming off a bushfire or even a scrub fire, it's quite scary being there on the ground. And being up and flying over the top of it, I suppose uh, you would really have to counter for that. There'd be a significant updraft, I'm, I'm thinking. Oh, it, it can be horrendous. Um, they generally don't get us even on the job doing firefighting unless there's a big problem unless they, they can't control it on the ground and they really need some help mm. because of the cost of it. So we, we never get to go bombing on nice days. It's always, you know, it's always horrible conditions. Pretty wind, windy and rough. And, and yeah, the, the, the turbulence associated with the with the fire activity is um, can be pretty bad. Yeah, Pretty yeah. bad, but you, it's just part of it. And when they uh, they coordinate that sort of uh, flying, I mean, what sort of coordination comes in from the, from the ground, from CFA or DSE? Well, Although we have about seven radios in the aircraft, thankfully we only really have to talk to one person and he's the, the air attack supervisor. Uh, and we, we very, very rarely ever get to drop anything without a, an air attack supervisor right there um, explaining what he wants to do. And it's his job in the helicopter, occasionally a fixed wing, to coordinate everything with the people on the ground, make sure there's no, no CFA or, or DSC staff um, in, in the drop area and uh, generally working with them. Fortunately, we don't have to do much of that kind of communication. They, they do it all for us. So we, we, we arrive on the fire. They've already been there probably for an hour assessing it and getting it organised and working out a strategy, and we just hold off to the side, and uh, when they're ready, they call us in and explain what, what drop they want us to do. So we, we're not autonomous at all. Um, the, the hard communications work is done by, uh, done by the air attack supervisor, and they do fantastic job. Well, I guess, uh, interestingly, uh, was it last year or the year before they had that DC-10, I think it was down here, that could uh, drop a, a heck of a lot of water. But uh, like you say, if they don't want to uh, spend the dollars, and uh, you know, <laughs> I certainly know CFA don't like to spend the dollars if they don't uh, they don't want to, um, I guess this would be a far more economical way of doing it. The, the big aircraft have their place, and they are very effective at times, but they, from what I can see, they, they do have limited um, uses. They look you can't obviously use them near any kind of um, building or, or other asset because they, they don't have the, the, the pinpoint sort of accuracy that we can get, although they can do an enormous run of, of fire retardant down a line. Mm. Um, where we're handy is, is we can actually hit specific spots, um, and particularly around houses and things if, if we need to. Yeah, yeah. I always think it's, you know, you guys in a smaller aircraft are doing most of the hard work, but it's the, the people with Elvis, the, the sky cranes, and they, they tend to get all the glory, but uh, <laughs> it's, they don't, uh, they're not used anywhere near as often as uh, people might think. They, they, yeah, well, it, it, there's a lot of fixed-wing aircraft out there. The, the fixed-wing aircraft outnumber the... Um, 
the helicopters as far as, as fire attack aircraft go, I think. But each has their place. The The helicopters are, are fantastic at what they do. And the real answer to, to a fire is, is to use the resources the best way and, and a combination of resources works really well. Yeah. They'll often have um, Elvis and, and the other guys with helicopters working in close, taking care of spot fires and, and um, working from water sources that are very close to the fire that they can use, whereas we'll, we'll have to ferry to, to reload. Uh, and our turnaround time might be anything from, from 10 minutes to, to half an hour or more, but they'll get us to do um, other other parts of the fire that are more use, more practical for us to do. When a fire, is, I mean, there's an awful amount of boredom involved with this job because you, you spend so much time sitting around, nothing happening, waiting for the phone to go. And when the phone goes, you, you're, you're airborne in 15 minutes off to who knows where. And all of a sudden, it's, it's, a, it's like a military operation. So it takes a lot of coordination. There's a heck of a lot of uh, behind the scenes decision making and planning goes involved in supporting the the operation and uh, when we do get working it's, it's uh, it, it all seems to work pretty well but my, my admiration is for the guys on the ground because although we might have our, our issues flying into a fire and with smoke and turbulence and whatever we're not, not actually on the ground looking at this fire in the face like the guys on, on the ground they're, they're pretty amazing Hey uh, let's talk RAOs you're a uh, senior instructor with RAOs uh, Yes I am Yeah, I, I had an instructor rating for um, ultralights in New Zealand before we came over and continued that at Turden actually uh, in about 1990. You know, I have a lot of admiration for that that sector. It's really come on in leaps and bounds. Are you seeing the same sort of shift that we seem to notice? A lot of people are starting to migrate a bit from GA and, and come across to, to RAOs. It seems to be what's happening. Yep, certainly. Um, certainly that's right. There's a bit less... I mean, an aeroplane's an aeroplane, and, and you have the same respect for it, whether it's a, uh, something big and powerful or, or recreational aircraft, they're still an aeroplane. Um, but the RAA types are just that little bit more um, user friendly in the in the in the operation. So yeah, we do find a lot of a lot of GA pilots, particularly guys who've had a license in the past and for whatever reason have been un- unable to continue flying. You know, they, they get married, have kids, and the private flying sort of stops. And then later in life, they get the opportunity and they, they um, come back to, to flying. And RAA is an excellent way to get back into flying. Yeah, yeah. I, I still, even even today, even with the advances in technology in this aircraft, I still come across a lot of GA guys that don't regard them as real aircraft, which I find a little frustrating, actually, because they are real aircraft. Absolutely, absolutely. It, um it's sad when when you see that sort of thing, and it, and it's usually you usually see it in people who've never experienced these aircraft either. They've seen them in, in magazines, but never actually flown one. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'd say to anyone who thinks that, I mean, if you're flying a Cessna 150, you can you can fly anything in RAOs. It's a pretty similar size aircraft. That's right. Yeah, there's not a lot of difference at that at that level. Although some of the RAA types can be a bit more challenging than than GA. The GA types are very very. Um, well, I wouldn't like, shouldn't really say easy to fly, but the Cessna and Piper have made a great job of, of building aircraft that are good for the masses. You know, people. they're very forgiving. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. they're beautifully uh, designed and, and their control feel and, and the way they handle it is predictable and and uh, they've done a great job. Yeah. The RAA types, a lot of them are, are a lot lighter, so you, you are going to get sort of bounced around a bit more. At the end of the day, they're still an aeroplane and they still require the same skills and, and mindset to fly safely. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, I did my ab initio a long time ago in a fleet of Cessna 152s and I did my fair share of getting bounced around, mate, I'll tell you that. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. One, one five twos. yeah, they bring back memories, don't they? Oh, yeah. Yeah, not many of them good, actually. Yeah, we won't go there. <laughs> so now you've, you've had all this experience and uh, hang gliders, uh, gyrocopters and all that sort of stuff. Now you're getting into the adventure flight business and we're seeing a, a lot of these operations pop up around the place. So what 
prompted you to start this as a business? Well, I guess it's something we've, we've uh, Beck and I have always sort of had a, an eye on. Uh, we, we both did a, a Nanchang flight uh, some years ago in uh, Bendigo and thought, wow, what, a, what an amazing thing to, to do. And uh, I guess it's always been in the back of our mind. And more recently, it's become possible and we took the plunge and, and, and have done it. Let's talk about some of the flights that you can offer to uh, to our listeners. Uh, what, what would be a typical flight? I mean, you've got 10, 15 or 20 minute flights going up there in the in the Nanchang. You operate out of Turidan down here in Victoria. One of the good things I think about operating at Turidan is you're straight out and straight out over Western Port Bay, no mucking around in the training area or waiting for clearances, mm. all that sort of stuff. So once you get in the plane, out to the runway and away you go. That's right. Yeah, we're, we're very lucky in that location. It's it's not only a scenic area to fly, but it's, um, it's a practical area to fly as well. The flights start from uh, a 10 minutes wheels wheels off to wheels on, which doesn't sound a lot, but 10 minutes is, is just enough time in this aeroplane to, to get you up there, uh, do some arrows, probably about as many arrows you, as you actually want to do, and uh, back on the ground. So it's a pretty intense little short flight, that one, uh, but very popular. Now, I guess the, the trick with all these flights is to, um, you know, you don't want to scare people half to death, do you? I mean, it's, I guess one of the, the skills you'd have to pick up doing this sort of flying is to judge what people are capable of handling. Yes, that's that's the hard part. If we enjoy it. We've done lots of flying and, and it's it's all sort of very ordinary for us, but it's easy to forget that the passenger may never have done anything like this before. So it's, you have to be very mindful of, of each person and everybody's different. Everybody's tolerance for this kind of thing is different. So you have to communicate. Communication in the cockpit and before you fly is, is the, the main thing. You have to try and get a feel for how relaxed they are, how apprehensive they may be and and work work with that. But certainly the, if, if somebody feels ill, as a result of doing the flying, it's um, it's certainly not what we're after. We we want people to enjoy it. And are you finding that um, you're getting a lot of people with aeronautical experience coming down and wanting to try this, or are you finding it's more the general public? It's a pretty good mix of both, actually. Um, there's a lot of people out there who don't fly actively who who love aviation and want to want to experience it. Uh, there's there's people who who do it on the spur of the moment. But we do get a lot of uh, existing pilots who, who want to have a taste of something outside what they, they normally do. Well, uh, now, of course, we're going to get Grant up in the aircraft at some point, and he's a hot air balloon pilot, so uh, I don't know that he does too many aerobatics, and I hope he doesn't do too many aerobatics in the uh, the hot air balloon, but uh, he's a he's an aerobatics freak, so uh, I'll give you a free reign to uh, you know load him up as much as you can. Oh, no problem. He no loves problem. that sort of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I might take a little bit more sedate flight if I get up there one day. No problem. Yeah, no problem. All right, then, so people can uh, find your website at AdventureWing.com wings.com.au and and, uh, of course you're on Facebook as well they've got a uh, good Facebook page there so you can find that Uh, actually if you go to their website they've got a great big uh, Facebook icon right there on the website so uh, make sure you get on there and uh, I'm sure if you uh, go up flying you'll end up with your uh, a nice screenshot from the video up there on the the site we certainly can absolutely and uh, what phone number would people uh, contact you on if they wanted to Uh, 0418-525-658 Fantastic. So we're once again at venturewings.com.au or 0418-525-658. Laurie, uh, thanks for coming in and having a chat with us and uh, all the best with Adventure Wings. Thank you. My pleasure. There comes a time in everyone's existence when we need to step out of our own personal comfort zone and in the immortal words of Lou Reed, 
take a walk on the wild side. Whilst I'm not proposing to either pluck my eyebrows or shave my legs, I have, for me, come to a fairly groundbreaking decision. Against all of my better judgement, and in the face of some fairly strongly held personal beliefs, I've decided to take a TIF. Yes, the infrequent flyer is going on a trial instructional flight. Hi, I'm Anthony Simmons, and this is The View from the Lounge. Several months ago, Steve and I were discussing various aspects of The View and PCDU in general when he mentioned the idea of a TIF. Despite my allegedly neo-Luddite status, I was pretty sure he was not referring to the tagged image file format method of saving a digital picture. A little further into the conversation, with a number of questions by myself of a WTF nature, it began to emerge that Steve was referring to a trial instructional flight. Now, I realise that with any form of vocation, you need to start somewhere. But I did not know that if you hand over a fistful of denarii, some trusting soul will quite happily take Joe Average off the street and give him, and or her, a trial instructional flight in a light aircraft as a precursor to handing over a veritable dump truck of shekels and commence pilot training. I realise that at this point most, if not all, of the PCDU listeners are probably thinking, you congenital idiot. What in God's name did you think Steve was referring to? But as someone who got roped into this whole aviation podcasting caper because of my dulcet tones and a complete ignorance of anything greater than six feet off the ground, I thought my lack of understanding understandable. As Steve went into greater detail regarding what a TIF entails, I was consumed with two conflicting, almost diametrically opposed emotions. An almost schoolboyish enthusiasm and sheer, unadulterated terror at the prospect. Even now, as I try to explain or rationalise my feelings, I'm still torn between two very separate and very real emotions. Part of me is champing at the bit that for even one minute I would be flying a plane. The other half is picturing a flaming twisted wreck in someone's backyard with a Channel 7 helicopter hovering overhead and the work experience girl speaking to camera saying, the last recorded transmission from the flight was, so I shouldn't press this button. I know that in the first or second view from the lounge I recorded, I stated that I was statistically more likely to die from cow than with plane, and I'm aware that this is completely irrational, but that's where I currently stand. So, enter the next step. Whilst I'm sure that all instructional flights are undertaken with due care and full responsibility, do I really want to get into the cockpit of a little plane with someone I haven't met whose introductory sentence in broken English is something along the lines of I used to for Aeroflot fly? Luckily, the rich and broad tapestry that is the driving grade of the Melbourne Metropolitan Public Train Network came to the fore, and Steve pointed out that within the ranks there is a bona fide rigid-edge instructor pilot who would be willing to take chicken, little, nervous, infrequent flyer for an instructional flight. As Providence would have it, 
This instructor is Laurie Burns, a man I know not only through my employment, but also through heritage and preserved steam railway operations. The other bonus is that Laurie also knows my father, and if it does come down to the aforementioned six o'clock news bulletin incident, I know who Laurie is going to have to answer to. Subsequently, in the not-too-distant, I'm going to have to saddle up and make my way down to the Harry Hawker Airport in Moorabbin, strap myself into the Cessna, or Spruce Goose, or Sop with Tabloid, and experience firsthand that marvellous, magical concept of flight. Steve and I have also discussed that there does need to be some record of this momentous occasion and hopefully we'll be able to have some video of the slightly more increasingly frequent flyer posted on the PTCU website. All things being equal, I'll get back on terra firma without too much terror and believe you me, if that happens, I will indeed drink to that. Always wanted to be a Top Gun? Looking for the ultimate heart-pumping experience? JetRide gives you that and more. With your personally tailored flight and individual gift pack, JetRide will make your dreams come true. At up to 900 k's an hour in a Soviet-era L-39, this is the jet fighter thrill of a lifetime. Go to jetride.com.au slash PCDU or in Australia call 1300 554 876. Nothing is impossible. This is Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Here's Peter Johnson. We're in front of the Merlin. Can you tell us a little bit about the aircraft? What aircraft did you fly before? Uh, Suhoi 22. Right, okay. That's quite an interesting aircraft. Mm -hmm. What was that like to fly? Faster. Yeah. (laughs) Gareth Stringer. Make no bones about it. This is still a very capable aircraft. The cockpit's very cramped, you've got leg restraints on, you're sat on a seat that's got explosives in it. Tim Robinson. Also the A400M, got to go inside and uh, have a poke around with. Just taking me on the trip of our lifetime in a F-18F Super Hornet. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Get your genuine Nanchang CJ6A flight today with Adventure Wings at Turidan. Special offer for PCDU listeners, adventurewings.com.au. And welcome back, folks. Well, uh, I tell you what, there you go, Grant. The infrequent flyer is uh, looking to become a uh, slightly more frequent flyer by the sounds of that. Oh, that's, uh, I don't know, I man. Just just let me know when he's doing it and I'll be sure to stay clear of the airspace. How about that? Well, you can uh, you can rest safe in the knowledge that uh, since Anthony recorded that, he's actually uh, now been up and done the flight and uh, we've taken some video of that. So uh, we'll certainly let you know. Now, the infrequent flyer, speaking of infrequent, you know, Grant, he actually does a lot more flying than you and I when it really comes right down to it. But uh, he's actually about to hop on a uh, on a jet airliner and head across to Europe for uh, one of his uh, annual family holidays. He's got a lot of family over there in Europe, as uh, long-time listeners to the show will know, so uh, we'll have to grab Anthony when he gets back. I actually told him the other day that uh, we'd be sending him on assignment to Europe, so there we go. Hopefully he's going to be able to catch up with uh, Peter Johnson. I think that's one of the things he's hoping to do when he gets over to the UK. So, uh, Oh, fantastic. So uh, just a warning in now, Peter, he's, he's, he's looking to seek you out, so you've got plenty of time to go and hide. <laughs> that's the one. Quick, mate. Go hide. Find somewhere he won't be in Europe. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what, Grant, somebody that never usually hides too much from us here at PCDU is the postman. I think I can hear him coming down the street. Once again, the midnight postie comes riding through. You know, he just manages to time it right here for the end of the episode. Have you noticed how he does that? 
Yeah, I think he's pretty amazing because sometimes it's one o'clock in the morning, sometimes as now it's nine thirty at night. Other times it's you know in between those. So he's doing pretty well. In fact, I think one time we even really tried to shock him by recording during the middle of the day, and he still showed up. It was that time when we were recording over in America that really amazed me? But there we go. Uh, yeah, I think that was when he uh, recruited one of his mates in the local area to come and help out. I thought he looked non-genuine while he was driving on the wrong side of the footpath. That's the, that was a giveaway right away. Yeah, I know, I know. And his bike sounded a little bit different. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, actual simulated paper email here, Grant. And oh. we've had uh, tons now, of course. Uh, there we go. Wow. Are. You've got some too. Now, we yes. should mention, of course, that we're changing our email address. We'll mention that again later on, I guess. But playingcrazydownunder at gmail.com, we've been using that for, uh, well, forever, really. But uh, we're changing it to contact at playingcrazydownunder.com. But uh, either of those two will work. But uh, we're going to plug that one from now on, aren't we, mate? Yeah, and I'd better go and make sure it does work. Now, apologies in advance for uh, those of you who we can't get to on the show. And I've tried to reply to everyone that sent us emails. We've had a, just a stack of emails, particularly since Avalon. So we really do appreciate it. And uh, actually, they are all positive, Grant. It's nice when you don't get hate mail. Oh, yes. It makes a pleasant change, I tell you. Now, this one came <laughs> back on uh, February 27th, and it's from Ryan uh, over in Virginia in the US. And now, Ryan's in the military, so he's asked us not to use his last name. That's fine. Ryan Smith. <laughs> Just kidding. Oh, Agent Smith will be really shocked. Yeah, there we go. No, it's not Ryan Smith, but uh, Ryan actually uh, sent us in a quick message saying thank you for all the time and energy for the podcast. He said he's been listening since the beginning and loves every minute of it and uh, enjoys the way, Grant, that our show uh, gives him the ability to compare and contrast the way they do things over there in the US to the way we do things over here on this side of the world. Now, uh, Grant, uh, in this uh, first email, he mentions that he's getting his PPL within the month. Now, of course, this was at the end of February. And uh, we want to say, too, that uh, Ryan actually sent us a subsequent email to tell us that he has now, in fact, got his private pilot's license. So, yes, thank you, studio audience. You're absolutely right. And uh, I tell you what, Grant, he'll need that because he also mentions here in this uh, first email that he's been selected by the United States Air Force. uh, Looks like to go into pilot training. So, uh, fantastic. That's outstanding. That's awesome. And he said, perhaps I could keep notes on my training and fill you in on the American process. Well, absolutely. Uh, Ryan, please do do that. And uh, if you don't already, make sure that you uh, get in touch with the Airspeed podcast. And I'm sure our good mate over there, Steve Tupper, would uh, be very interested to hear from you. And uh, I'm sure that uh, as he's doing with one of the uh, Navy pilots, he's been uh, tracking one of the Navy pilots right through his training process. That's a fascinating series. So, uh, Ryan, I would encourage you to get in uh, touch with Steve Tupper. As if Steve hasn't got enough to do, we're just organising his show for him, mate. Well, mate, it's not just me you give extra work to. You're doing it to Steve. Well done. I'm very good at doing that, mate. Just ask anybody. Yeah, I've noticed. (laughs) Now, our second email comes in here from Andrew uh, Vondersag. And uh, Andrew wrote into us and said, Hi, I've just uh, finished up and listening to and watching all of your Avalon 2013 coverage. I just wanted to say what a fantastic job you did. Well, thank you very much, Andrew. And I congratulate you on your good taste. Yeah, and uh, don't forget, Andrew, since uh, the date of the email, we've released another couple of videos. And there's more coming out. So watch that. That space. Now, Andrew said uh, there that uh, his uh, favourite interviews were the ones that we did with the F-22 Raptor crew. And uh, I tell you what, with those interviews, it was much handier for us talking to the display guys this year who, uh, you know, were knew what they could and couldn't say. And uh, I found them uh, much better interviews. But, uh, you know, with all due respect to the guys in 2011, uh, they're not display pilots. And it's uh, you're getting out and doing the PR thing, I guess, is uh, not really what they <laughs> felt comfortable doing. So I don't hold anything against those guys. But, uh, yeah, it was a, a fantastic interview. And, uh, you know, I can't speak highly enough of the display they put on. 
one. That was just awesome. Absolutely uh, fantastic. Yep. Now, he also mentioned here that the uh, the aerobatic displays from the days that he visited Avalon uh, were watching the uh, tin sticks of dynamite display and the Breitling wing walkers. Um, well, we'd have to agree with that. Some spectacular displays there this year. It was a much smaller Avalon uh, than previous years, as we've mentioned. But, you know, of the acts that uh, were there, there was uh, some really fantastic uh, acts there. And, uh, you know, when you talk about the Breitling wing walkers and the tin sticks of dynamite and the F-22 display, well, they're things that we've not seen here at Avalon before. So, uh, yeah. I agree with you, Andrew. It was great to see them. Yeah, that was fantastic. Some of the uh, the aerobatics and uh, the pyros and everything that Tin Sticks used was great. And, of course, the Breitling wing walkers, well, <laughs> mate, absolutely amazing. Uh, small packages of intense energy. Those ladies were amazing. Now, uh, just echoing those comments, there uh, was a quick email that we got here back on the 10th of March from Adam Knight, and uh, he's also uh, echoing those thoughts on the F-22. He said he really enjoyed the coverage and uh, in- enjoyed uh, watching the F-22. So uh, thanks, uh, Adam, for writing in to let us know that. And, uh, Grant, we've got a fourth email here that we've picked out of the uh, pack. We'll just uh, grab it here. I actually did print this one out. Now, this one came in, in uh, a couple of months back from uh, Scott Tavassi. Now, uh, Scott says, Hey, gang, first of all, I'd like to congratulate you on a great episode 99 to mark the retirement of the C-130H. He said he really enjoyed listening to it, and uh, he said he's going to keep this in the file of stuff to listen to in around 20 years' time. <laughs> now, he just had one correction here for me. Uh, he said, I've just uh, one comment regarding the content. He said, Steve indicated that uh, during the media formation flight that A97005 was in the lead. I'm pretty sure it was 008. And he says he knows that because, in fact, he was the captain and the formation lead. Well, Scott, <laughs> I can't really uh, I can't really argue with much as I'd like to say, you don't know what you're talking about, man. Well, <laughs> I can't argue with logic like that. So. <laughs> <laughs> you got to stomp down your Dutch nature. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, 5, 8, it, you know, it all looks the same sort of, doesn't it? They're all numbers. <laughs> well, you know, five had the tail, eight didn't. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, it was really cool to uh, to get an email from Scott. He says, actually, um, he goes on to say here, Grant, that the following day, he says, uh, I resigned from the Royal Australian Air Force after 17 years uh, of service. Wow. Uh, he sort of felt his uh, career was over there with the retirement uh, of that uh, aircraft type, I guess. And he's now working over in the Middle East, uh, teaching people to fly PC-9s and soon the PC-21. Well, I'll tell you what, if you're going to walk away from flying Hercs, I reckon uh, getting in there, particularly the PC-21, if you can get your hands on that Scott oh that was beautiful love to uh, love to hear about that uh, if and when it happens for you mate but uh, he goes on to say um, uh, which is uh, you know really cool from, from our perspective he said uh, thanks again for the production it'll be something to let my daughters listen to in the years to come so Scott thanks so much for writing into us mate and I do apologise for that slight error I may have got a little bit carried away did I mention how excited I was about uh, writing on that Hercules Grant have I, have I mentioned it enough in the four or five months since uh, you're certainly giving it a jolly good go <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah no, A90 a- Seven double oh eight had the fifty years tail art. A ninety seven double oh five had the fantastic yellow farewell tail art. And um, mate. I think he's uh, definitely in the position to know. <laughs> well done to him for c- catching us on that one. And um, have I distracted you enough from uh, your discussion about being on the flight deck during the uh, run up the harbour? Uh, no, probably not. But there you right, go. okay. There you go. Anyway, uh, Scott, do us a favour, mate. Please stay in contact. I'd uh, I'd love to be able to uh, keep in contact with you and uh, see how things are going over there in your new career. And uh, who knows? Maybe we could, uh, you know, twist uh, Scott's arm to come on the show one time and tell us about his career in the Royal Australian Air Force. Uh, I'm sure over 17 years. 
years, he would have flown some uh, very interesting uh, missions, and I'm sure he's flown some very interesting aircraft. That's for sure, mate. And it's it's great to know that we're um, going to be listened to in 20 years' time and uh, let his kids have a listen to what he did. And you know what? I think uh, you'll probably find that Steve will still be talking about that C-130 flight in 20 years' time, don't you? <laughs> so uh, once again, thanks to everybody that's uh, written into us, and uh, there's been, we've had a lot of interaction, as usual, on our uh, Facebook page. Uh, I guess the forums over there at uh, downwind.com.au, have, they're still active, but uh, I think that's kind of unfortunately gone by the wayside. But uh, a lot of people keeping in touch with us, uh, a lot of people following us on Twitter now, and uh, we really do appreciate every uh, each and every one of you who uh, takes the time to write into us. Thanks very much. And um, apologies again. It's only a, a small selection that we had time to read here on this episode. Mate, I just wish I had the time to sit on more forums and uh, keep up to date with what's going on. But that's life. And uh, with my day job as it is, I've got to be there all the time to pay the rent. Say la vie. All right. Well, let's uh, list them out for this episode. Let's move on to shout outs. Now, Grant, I'll tell you what, uh, as anybody would know that ever goes to an air show, there are some really fancy looking camera gear around and uh, lots of lenses that look like the size of loaves of bread. And uh, there's, uh, there's some really uh, professional photographers and some really great amateur photographers out there and uh, someone who fits into the, uh, I guess, semi-professional photographer uh, category. And I only say that because uh, I actually work with this gentleman is Michael <laughs> Frost. So I guess he can't be uh, completely always doing photography, Michael, and because uh, I, I have seen you driving trains occasionally. <laughs> Michael has uh, taken some fantastic uh, photos and uh, we actually found him through someone. I think somebody sent us a link on the Facebook page and I thought, yeah, I know that guy. But now he's uh, very kindly sent us uh, a link to uh, his page on his own website that has all of the uh, Avalon 2013 uh, airshow photos that he took. Now he said he took about 4,500 photos. Uh, <laughs> I don't think they're all on there, but uh, the ones that are on there are spectacular. So uh, mjfphotography.photoshelter.com and uh, you can find your way through there and uh, Grant, you'll uh, pop a link in the show notes for that. Most certainly, mate. And yeah, I'm just having a quick look at the photos at the moment and what can I say but wow, yep. some great shots. Awesome stuff. Now uh, let's move on to a good friend of the podcast, Doug Worrell. Now uh, who's Doug Worrell you might say? Well, Doug does a lot of interesting things. He's a professional pilot and uh, does a lot of uh, other really interesting things in his spare time when he's not at work. And uh, one of those things that Doug has been dabbling in lately is uh, developing an iPad game. Now Grant, uh, now it's also an Android game, that's true. Uh, and this one's called Leo, Low Earth Orbit. Now I say it's a game but uh, it's, it's very, very challenging and quite deliberately so. How would you describe it, mate? I'd say it's one of the uh, more challenging games I've, I've had a go at and I'm really enjoying it. Uh, you get to fly your spaceship off the planet, up into orbit, move around in the orbit, bring it back, accomplish a variety of missions and it's it's reasonably realistic too and it's definitely challenging. Yes, and uh, we're happy to get Doug on the show uh, You know, in the next uh, few episodes. Uh, maybe we can con him into coming online and telling us all about how it came about. We did talk about it in a recent episode of the Airplane Geeks, where uh, we nabbed a Doug, made him buy us lunch, and then stuck a microphone in front of him. But, I know, uh, sneaky, aren't we? And uh, of course, uh, our friend Peter Johnson and the gang over there at uh, Aviation Extended have also done a pretty uh, comprehensive review of this app. Now, uh, Doug's also gone to the trouble of uh, throwing together a rather cool promo. Let's have a listen. Game challenge begins. Launch. Circular orbit. Rapid rendezvous. Intercept and dock with International Space Station. All engine running. Lift off. Push the ISS to higher orbit. Rescue EVA astronauts. Avoid space debris. Destroy debris with missiles. Protect the ISS. As long as possible. 
Deorbit. Land. Survive. All in a day's work. We had a pretty large bank. Okay, yeah, yeah, we've had a problem here. Most control, both autos. He's been at command override off. We've had shutdown. Leo. Low Earth Orbit. A game from skyrocketcafe.com. Well, very impressive stuff. We might have to throw that into our ad rotation for the next uh, few episodes, I think. Now, the idea of the game is that you you have to uh, basically launch a spacecraft and get it into uh, you know one of four or five different orbits around the Earth. And uh, he's put a lot of uh, real life physics into. Uh, you know, I don't know how he does this. I'm I'm no app developer, but uh, <laughs> the idea is that uh, you know you have to get it out there and you have to do it properly. And there's all sorts of you know reverse thrust and all this sort of stuff. It's not easy to do. Very very challenging and uh, you know it's it's designed to make you think and it certainly does make me think and uh, I tell you what Doug it hurts my brain so thanks very much <laughs> and uh, yeah it's not so much reverse thrust as retros mate retro there you, you go. fire the retros decreases your orbital velocity helps bring you back down uh, yeah I'm loving it I'm really enjoying it although I do have my own distinctive style for flying it that isn't quite as Doug would like us to fly it but hey it works for me and I'm not consuming too much fuel so what the heck <laughs> sounds a bit like you're driving mate that too and <laughs> I'm told my flying as well. But anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Now, folks, we really would encourage you to get over there and uh, purchase a copy of this and support Doug. He has been a huge supporter in the background of this program for many years, right since its inception. He's a great guy, and uh, he's put a, a huge amount of effort into this program. You can find his website at leo-lowearthorbit.com. We'll put links to that in the show notes. You can find it on Google Play. Uh, you can find it in the Amazon App Store, and you can uh, find it, of course, in the iTunes uh, App Store. So uh, grab it on iPad, Grant, I think you've uh, tried some trial versions on the uh, on the Android devices. It works pretty well it's on working that Working fine, mate. Working fine. There was a couple of problems with an earlier version, but the latest ones are absolutely rock solid and great. Really enjoying them. Okay, so moving on. Now, uh, folks, you may remember back at uh, Avalon, we spoke to young Ryan Campbell. Now, Ryan is uh, going to uh, make an attempt to be the youngest person to fly solo around the world, and that's coming up uh, in just a couple of months from now. Grant, actually, I noticed there's a, a young lad over in the US now that's uh, looking like uh, he's also going to uh, give that a, sh- a shot as well. So uh, we oh, need to wow. make sure that uh, Ryan gets himself well-funded and uh, gets out there and gets that record first. So I've been talking to Ryan via email, and uh, we've decided that we're going to... Uh, Uh, try and uh, help out. Now, we're going to ask the uh, listeners of the show to uh, participate in this grant. And one of the things that Ryan is doing is uh, offering advertising space on the aircraft. Now, uh, it costs $500 to get your logo on the side of the aircraft. And of course, if you're an aviation business and you'd like to do this independently, then uh, I would really encourage you to uh, head across to teenworldflight.com and uh, make sure that you get on board with that. But uh, we would like to do something uh, from a plane crazy down under standpoint. Now, yes, it's all good that we get advertisers here, but uh, I don't know that we can afford 500 bucks on our own that would uh, that would probably hurt us a bit financially we're not a not a big time business here at PCDU at least not yet but uh, what we can do is we can chip in uh, half that amount so uh, Grant we've been talking about this and uh, we've yep. decided that uh, we might chip in $250 and we'd like uh, 25 members of the PCDU audience to chip in $10 each to make it up to 500 and uh, you know that can get a PCDU logo on the side of uh, Ryan's aircraft and uh, we're going to have a, a message there uh, saying that it's from the listeners of Plane Crazy 
easy down under. So what do you think of that, mate? I think that's brilliant. I think, yeah, if we can get everyone together, we'll have the PCDU logo and from the audience of PCDU, that kind of thing on there. If you folks can chip in 250, we'll match that so that the organizers and the audience all chipped in to help Ryan get uh, his plane uh, around the world. So yeah, just uh, use the donate button on our website, put in the uh, comments that this is towards uh, Ryan's flight and uh, we'll match you up to $250 and uh, get the money across to Ryan and hopefully it can all come together in time and we'll get the logo, we'll get the message and we'll help a really good cause. Absolutely. Now make sure that you uh, include all your contact details on there and uh, we'll create a page on our website just listing uh, everybody who's involved. If you would prefer to remain anonymous, that's fine too. Just let us know. But uh, yeah, we think uh, a PCDU logo with a message on there saying that the listeners of Playing Crazy Down Under are supporting Ryan Campbell uh, in this uh, epic uh, adventure to fly solo around the world. We want to make sure he does it before, uh, you know, that other guy from somewhere else in the world does it. We don't want that happening so we want ryan to get the record now you know we've got several thousand listeners uh, to this show each episode so uh, we just like 25 of you to donate 10 australian dollars it doesn't have to be 25 you could donate more or less Absolutely. And if you'd like to donate more than that, well, that's fine too. Uh, but we just think that uh, for 10 bucks each, maybe 25 of you, uh, that would make it really easy. But uh, yeah, so if you want to donate more to Ryan, I'm sure he can use the money. Uh, he's always looking for uh, corporate sponsorship and uh, that's the only way he's going to be able to uh, pull uh, this world record attempt off. So uh, yeah, yeah, let's get on board and uh, let's help Ryan do that. Now, of course, if more of you chip in and we wind up with more than $250, we'll still put in 250 and uh, the excess will all go to Ryan. So if we wind up raising even more more than $500, it all goes to the good cause. Fantastic. Actually, if we go over the 500 grand, it could buy some fish and chips for you. No, 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 that's not right at all. No, <laughs> no, because if you get fish and chips, I'm having a beer. But anyhow. Yeah, and that won't keep kilos out of the cockpit, but that's a whole nother story. Oh, and I'm working hard on that one, mate. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'm working I'm working hard the other way, sadly. Actually, it's not, <laughs> actually, it's not taking much work at all, to be honest. <laughs> it's just doing what comes natural. <laughs> yes, sadly. Okay, so uh, let's move on to the last thing we wanted to mention here for this episode. And, of course, uh, that's a little promotion that we're doing with our good friends over at Flight Path TV. A great uh, bunch of uh, Kiwis there that make that fantastic uh, show that you see on the Discovery Channel from time to time. Grant, uh, what are we going to do with those guys? Well, thanks to the generosity of Fletcher and Malcolm from Flight Path TV, uh, they've given us three copies of their first season. It's all the episodes episodes of their first season. Uh, it's a, a set of DVDs, beautifully packaged, and we've got three of them to give away. So uh, what we're doing is running a bit of a competition. And uh, because uh, Fletch and Mel are from New Zealand, uh, despite the fact that the uh, content is from all around the world, because they're from New Zealand, we thought we'd uh, link Australia, New Zealand, the USA all together. And the challenge is the first three people who email us with the correct answer are going to win one of the copies. And the question is which company purchased the 8X New Zealand Air Force A4 Skyhawks? Which company purchased them? They also purchased a few Mackies, uh, but we're asking the question, which company purchased the eight remaining XRNZAF A4 Skyhawks? First three people to email us with the correct answer, win a copy each. There you go. Now, uh, we're not going to be drawing names out of a hat this time, but we're just going to take the first three emails that come into our new address, of course, which is contact at playing crazy down under.com and uh, by the way if you 
your name is David Vanderhoof, you're precluded from entering this because I know you already know the answer. Uh, same with ATC Ben and Ben Jones and, in fact, anyone who's part of the PCDU crew. Sorry, guys. We've got to open this up to the rest of the audience. <laughs> Absolutely. So there we go. Contact at playingcrazydownunder.com. The uh, first three correct answers that come in that can tell us uh, which company bought the uh, the ex-Kiwi Air Force Skyhawks. I know that uh, many of our listeners, in fact, I can think of quite a few of our Kiwi listeners that uh, always send us lots of great information that are madly typing away on their keyboards even as we speak. Ah, yes, be the first ones in and you get them. Now, of course, uh, if you happen to miss out on being the first three in or if you just don't want to go with the answer and just want to uh, help support another good cause, Fletch and Mel have given us a link that gets you 20% off if you want to buy the series. So quite simply, you go to leadingedgemedia.tv slash two zero. So that's leadingedgemedia.tv slash two zero. And we will have that link in the show notes on our Facebook page and various other places. Uh, You go to that link, it gets you 20% off so you can buy the uh, season one disc collection if you don't want to go in the competition or if you don't happen to be lucky enough to be one of the first three to answer. So lots of options, folks, and definitely a wonderful show. Highly recommended. A lot of fun. And uh, the guys at Flight Path TV, folks, if you haven't seen our KC30A video, the latest one that we've got out on our YouTube channel, uh, actually uh, Fletch was uh, really generous to uh, donate some of the vision that he took of the uh, the Hornets refueling uh, from the KC30 because, uh, let's face it, that guy knows what he's doing and uh, all I had was my iPad. It's actually very hard to uh, add to those little uh, aircraft windows on the on those airliners to get good vision when you've got a Hornet sort of tucked right in next to you. But uh, uh, Fletch yeah. uh, did manage to get some some really good vision, and uh, we really appreciate him sharing that with us. So, uh, yeah, make sure if you haven't seen that video yet, folks, make sure you get over and check out our YouTube channel. There's all sorts of videos on there. We've got nearly 50 of them on there now, in fact. Yeah, that's right. There's a lot of good stuff, ranging from the KC-30 and the uh, ACJ-319 that were recorded at Avalon, as well as, of course, our uh, daily Avalon updates. And we've even got a little um, humorous piece in there that uh, Jonesy and I recorded with the Sennheiser girls. Yeah, it's yeah. all PG. Don't worry. It's all PG. <laughs> it yeah, is safe for work. Yeah. How did you guys score that gig and I missed out on? And I did, Jonesy, I tell you, what's going on? Uh, I think you were on the other side of an irrigation ditch going, Oi! Yes. Ah, great fun. Well, I think that just about wraps up this episode of Playing Crazy Down Under. Folks, so don't forget you can hear us every week on the Airplane Geeks podcast with our Australian News Desk report, which is not just rehashed versions of what we do here on PCDU. That's a weekly news report about uh, all things military and general aviation. And, you know, we have a bit of fun there too, don't we, mate, most weeks? Yeah, we're not always always serious on that one, but uh, we're generally giving you news and updates and uh, a lot of fun. So definitely worth checking out our additional content. Absolutely. And, of course, you can find that at airplanegeeks.com and uh, Grant actually we uh, made a cameo recently in an episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast when we had Len Costa from that show right here in the studio as he was over here allegedly on vacation but we uh, nabbed him and uh, brought him over here to the studio and made him do a podcast it was great fun. Oh it was hilarious really enjoyed uh, having Len with us in the studio and in fact you got to see how the other half lived by being on the same side of the table as I'm normally on as uh, you gave the controls to Len. Yeah it's a little weird sitting over on the other side of the studio here. It's, uh, it's interesting, actually. <laughs> yeah, and in fact, there's also a cameo appearance of a couple of dogs and uh, various <laughs> other things happening. It was uh, it was a lot of fun to record, and it's come out really well. We, we had a lot of great information to uh, impart on that uh, that episode. Yes, and uh, of course, folks, that's episode 46 of the Stuck Mike Fcast. You can find that at stuckmikefcast.com. So uh, there we go. We're uh, always happy to uh, plug other podcasts around the aviation community and uh, the Stuck Mike Fcast. I've said it before, and I'll 
and I'll say it again, it's uh, it's certainly one of the best. Those guys uh, really do uh, put a lot of work into making that a great show, and uh, it was a, a real privilege to have Len here uh, in the studio doing his stuff. And uh, I tell you what, uh, yeah, he looked quite at home here, Grant, uh, sitting in the big black chair and uh, doing all the work. You know, actually, I could get used to somebody else coming in here and doing all the work for me. Yeah, I, I think you're looking pretty relaxed on the other side of the microphone there and not having to run all the systems, and you could just sit back, chat, and enjoy the blinking lights. Absolutely. Len, come back. Come back to Australia, mate. We'll uh, we'll put you on the PCDU crew. You can be our, our guest editor, producer, and uh, actually, if he does that, we'd probably never let him leave the house, would we? No, no. We'd uh, tie him down to the desk like you used to be and uh, make him work harder. So that's everything we have for this episode. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks to Dave Jacker for uh, taking the time to join us. Make sure you uh, check out uh, his website, onawingandachair.org.au. Thanks also to Laurie Jones, and uh, thanks to Anthony, the infrequent fly, Simmons, and thanks, of course, to all of you for listening. We'll catch you again soon, but remember, when you're aviation, podcasting, flying, or any of that sort of stuff, well, you know, just remember this. It's what's down under that counts, folks. You've been listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. You can find us on Twitter as PCDU, and for more information about the team, feedback, storylines you'd like us to follow, or any advertising inquiries, go to our website, planecrazydownunder.com. Playing Crazy Down Under is a Southern Skies online media production. The kind folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts. We're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. All right, ready? Three, two, one, go, dude. Well, good day, folks, and welcome back to Playing Crazy Down Under, episode 108. Episode 108 of Australia's. Of Australia's. Let's just start that again, shall we, Grant? <laughs> Roger that. Uh, erase all prior recordings. We computer. don't do this often enough, do we? <laughs> Anymore. <laughs> what about uh, mixture control, Dave? Uh, when I had mixture in the Jabiru. Okay, let's delete that question then. <laughs> I've never flown one. I didn't know. I'm just trying to look at this. I'm not playing the video, but uh, I'm just looking at pictures of you from the video. I was thinking, oh, what about mixture? One from now on, aren't we, mate? Yeah, and I'd better go and make sure it does work. <clears throat> yes. Yes, you should do that. I talked to the oh, Hang on, you're the IT department. Anyway. I'll, I'll take myself into the corner and have a jolly good talking to. Now, now apologies. Opportunity, Stephen Grant. It's a pleasure, mate. Talk no worries, mate. Okay, Thanks. that's a wrap. <sighs> now I can make something out of that. <laughs>